And uh, all right. So, well, if you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. We're glad you're here. And I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans. We are studying the book of Romans. And we are now in Romans chapter 14. And as you're finding your way there, I want to give you a bit of a map to this next part of the letter. Because so far, the Apostle Paul's instructions in the book of Romans have been universal. In other words, they are universal truths that could have been written to any body of believers. And we read what Paul has written here, and we understand it to be timeless truth, timeless revelation, as he gives an exposition of the gospel, the power of the gospel. Not much has been said about anything specific in the church of Rome that would cause him to write the letter. There have been some hints of it, but nothing specifically identified until now. Beginning in chapter 14, verse 1, Paul addresses a specific problem in the church. We always need to be careful when we are reconstructing the situational context when we're really only hearing one side of the conversation. But it's pretty clear that there is conflict in the church over matters of conscience, over matters of conviction. One group in the church at Rome is a minority group of believers who hold to more restrictive convictions, more restrictive practices. Specifically, we see in these two chapters dietary rules, observing sacred days, like maybe the Sabbath, and drinking wine. Paul identifies these believers who have these more restrictive convictions as brothers and sisters who are weak in faith. And he warns that group of believers in the church to not pass judgment on others. These are probably Jewish believers. The other group is the majority group of believers in the church at Rome who are confident in their liberty from these restrictions. Paul calls them strong in faith. And he warns them not to despise or exclude the others. These are probably Gentiles. In retrospect, then, we can see why, if, if you think about, and you've been here with us at Crossway for this series in the book of Romans, we're getting toward the end now. And if you think back over the 13 preceding chapters, we can see why the Apostle Paul has emphasized that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. That there is no exception for being accountable to God for our sin and rebellion against him. Even those who have the law, Israel, the Jewish people, because the law is incapable of making anybody right with God. 
including those who received the law as a covenant, as a basis of relationship with God. This is why Paul warns Gentiles against arrogance toward Israel in chapter 11. Remember that Israel was the original, the original tree, the olive tree. They have been lopped off as a branch as a judgment of God because of their unbelief, their rejection of Christ. And the Gentiles have been grafted in. And Paul warns everyone who has been grafted in, says, if God can take you who are a wild shoot, a wild branch, and graft you in to the civilized tree, the tree of salvation, don't think he can't take the original branch and regraft it in. And in fact, he says, God will do that. And now we can see why in chapter 12, Paul is so adamant about the need for genuine love. Genuine love. This is a love that is whole, that is not divided. Or as we can see here in, in chapter 14, a love that is impartial. It's not partial. It doesn't play favorites. It's not a love just for those who agree with us. So Paul's big concern here in these chapters then is the unity of the church. Lives that are transformed by the power of the gospel will find unity, not discord. And his instruction in chapters 14 and 50 break down like this. In chapter 14 verses 1 through 12, unity begins with accepting one another begins with accepting each other. Secondly, then in chapter 14, verses 13 through 23, unity requires a sacrifice of liberties for love's sake. And then in chapter 15, verses 1 through 13, unity is established when we follow Christ's example. Now with that, let's read Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. 
Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves this morning to grappling with this text, to giving our hearts attention to it. Give us wisdom and understanding. You have spoken these things and you have preserved them not only for this generation of the church, but for this body at Crossway. And I pray that you will, you will give us understanding and courage to apply it. In your name we pray, amen. Unity begins then with accepting each other. And these verses give us three grounds for doing just that. Three grounds for accepting each other. First, we each are accepted by God. Secondly, we each belong to one master. And thirdly, we each give an account to the judge. We each give an account to the judge. According to verses 1 through 3, we each are accepted by God. We each are accepted by God. You can see the main theme of these verses in the word welcome. Paul uses this word in verse 1. He uses it in verse 3. It is a word that means to receive or to accept. It's not simply tolerating someone, but it is including that someone as someone who belongs as someone who fits in. It is a stronger word than our English word welcome. We use the word welcome as something we might, we want to make sure we welcome strangers. We want to welcome somebody that we don't know. But this word has to do with taking somebody inside, including them. Paul will use the word again at the conclusion of this whole passage in chapter 15, verse 7. Therefore, welcome or accept one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. To accept another person is the opposite of condemning them, of excluding them, or treating them with partiality, treating them as second class. Paul is again speaking to two parties in the church who instead of accepting each other, are quarreling over opinions or matters, issues. So these are positions that they've taken. And Paul corrects both groups. And interestingly, he does not correct either group for their viewpoint or their conviction. He corrects them for how they are treating each other. His first concern then in verse 1 is for the believers who are weak in faith. Welcome him. Those who are weak in faith are to be accepted and not excluded as if they don't belong. So the weak in faith are probably in the minority. They are the most vulnerable to being excluded. They don't have the influence to exclude the other party. But his concern at the end of verse 3 is for the strong in faith. And by the way, I, I keep using that term. Paul doesn't actually use that phrase, strong in faith, until chapter 15, verse 1. But you can see the contrast is clear. It's the weak in faith and those who are strong. 
And verse 2 gives us an example of one of the divisive issues, eating anything versus eating only vegetables. Now, vegetarianism sometimes causes conflict among us, but usually in a joking way. This is not vegetarianism as we know it, which comes from disliking the taste of meat or the idea of meat or rejecting meat for health considerations or just not liking the, uh, the idea or being offended by the killing of animals or something like that. Eating only vegetables was a way a person could ensure that they were not eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols and then sold in the market. So in the pagan temples, they would offer a sacrifice and then they would butcher the animal And once they had offered it in sacrifice, they didn't consume all of it in a fire. They would take the parts that were edible and they would then put it into the market and sell it. And so then people would come through the market and they would see their meat and they would go, man, that looks good. Well, I'll buy that. They would buy that meat. They would take it home. They would cook it and they would eat it. One group's faith allows them the liberty of eating whatever they find and buy in the market without being corrupted or without displeasing the Lord. And so Christians, the Gentiles in the church of Rome, largely the Gentiles, would go through the market and they would see meat that they would like and they would buy it, they would take it home, they would cook it, they would eat it, and they would never consider whether or not that meat might have been part of an idolatrous ceremony. And even if it had been, it didn't bother them. It was just meat. They're free from that. The other group is weak in faith. These are believers whose convictions would not allow them to eat meat because they considered eating meat sacrificed to idols as a way of participating in idolatry and being made unclean, being corrupted by that. Again, these are probably Jews who had come to Christ, have become Christians, and are no longer practicing Judaism, but they lived life under the Mosaic, uh, the Mosaic law for so long, and in that culture for so long, that they cannot come to grips with just walking through the market and finding some meat to eat And saying, well, I don't know if this was used in an idolatrous sacrifice and ceremony or not, but it doesn't matter. They would go, it could have been. And that's going to displease the Lord. Because he's still the same God, isn't he? And the God who has loved us in Christ and saved us through the sacrifice of Christ is still a jealous God. Who does not just allow us to worship other gods because we're in Christ. And free from the law of Moses. And so they look at that and they go, well, we're just not going to buy meat in the market. We're just not going to eat meat. We're only going to eat vegetables. That's the vegetarianism that Paul's talking about here. Now, to be weak in faith, to clarify, doesn't mean lesser trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. As if the The faith that brings us into a right relationship with God was inadequate for for these folks who are weak in faith. 
It just means that they are not confident in living with liberty from the Mosaic regulations. It also means that how they're applying their faith does need to grow. It needs maturing. It needs strengthening. Obviously, it's better to have a strong faith than a weak faith. But this is not a strong faith or weak faith that has to do with how easily they believe God when God makes a promise or has saved them and whether or not Jesus is who he said he is. This has to do with a confidence in applying that faith to certain freedoms from the laws and the regulations they had grown up with. But again, Paul is not focused, watch, he is not focused on strengthening the faith of those who are weak in faith. Not once in all of this, these chapters does Paul say, and now try to help them become stronger in their faith. Even if that would be a good thing, even if it's preferable to have a strong faith instead of a weak faith, Paul never goes there. If anything, in the next passage, he does just the opposite. But he does not try to strengthen the faith of those whose faith is weak, but Paul is focused on unity. And that has to do with mutual acceptance. And so Paul warns the first group, do not despise, don't look down on, don't hold in contempt the other group because they are weak in faith. Paul also warns the second group, the weak in faith, to not pass judgment on, to not condemn, to not treat as inferior those who will eat, those who will go through the market and not care whether or not the meat has been used in some idolatrous ceremony. Why not? Because God has welcomed him, verse 3. God has welcomed him. Now, in one sense, this statement applies to both groups to recognize this truth about the other group. God has welcomed both. But it is really directed to the weak in faith. And as a double-edged reminder, and here's why I say that, to the minority, those who are not confident in their liberties from the law of Moses and its regulations, it is a reminder that God himself has accepted those who do not live under the restrictions of the law. And if you want to see the process, the historical process of how this came to light in the church, you have to read the book of Acts. You have to see how the gospel starts with Jewish believers, how they are saved in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 and become the beginning of the church and the Holy Spirit comes. And then Acts chapter 8, where the Holy Spirit comes to the Samaritans and the gospel and salvation, the Samaritans are saved and they receive the same blessings that the Jews did. And then in chapter 10, it happens to the Gentiles. And do you remember what happens immediately before Peter goes to the home of Cornelius and preaches the gospel and Gentiles in mass are saved for the first time and welcomed into the church? The Lord has to visit Peter in a vision and lower down a sheet full of unclean animals. You remember this? Peter's asleep. 
and he has this vision, and God lowers down this sheet of unclean animals and says, rise and eat. And Peter's like, no. Rise and eat, okay. And Peter understands. Then when he awakens from the vision that the Lord is paving the way, and immediately when he wakes up, there's a knock at the door, and it's the messenger from Cornelius. And Peter goes, oh, I guess I'm going to the Gentiles. And he goes to Cornelius' house, and he goes into a Gentile's house, and he preaches the gospel. But it began with God freeing Peter up from the regulations of the dietary laws of the Mosaic law. So you have to see this is always in process in the early days of the church, and now it's continuing some decades later in the city of Rome, in a local church just like our local church. And the Lord is saying to the minority here that God has accepted those who don't live under the restrictions of the law. And if God has accepted that person, then you have no right to pass judgment on him. But to the majority, this is the double-edged reminder, to the majority, those who are confident in their freedom from the law's restrictions, it is a reminder that they used to be outsiders. Do you see that? God has now accepted him. Oh, yeah, that's right. I used to not be accepted. I used to be on the outside. I used to be somebody without a relationship to God. And now suddenly I find myself in the majority, but I used to be the outsider. But God has accepted me even though I was not under the law, even though I had no covenant, even though I had no basis for relationship with this God. So our accepting each other is grounded first in the truth that God has accepted each of us even when we were unacceptable. Regardless of whether we had the law or not. And therefore, we all belong to him. We each belong to him. Which brings us to the second grounds for accepting each other. We each belong to one master. Verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And so Paul now draws upon this common relationship, this dynamic between a servant or a slave and a master, an owner. There is a sense in which we are accountable to each other. We are commanded to admonish each other. We are commanded to pursue each other, even at times to rebuke one another. We are commanded to restore each other when we've fallen into sin. But ultimately, each of us is accountable to God alone. It is God alone who does the sentencing. The Apostle Paul applies this truth to Christian leadership in 1 Corinthians 4, 2 through 5, but it applies to us. He writes there, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. 
For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, Paul is saying this to the Corinthians because they were choosing up their leaders. And they were saying, well, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas or Peter. And then there was one group in Corinth that just said, well, we're just going to top all of you. We follow Christ. And so they set up their little camps. And they had their kind of spiritual, we're more spiritual than you. Yes, we are. We're more spiritual than you. Yes, we are. And Paul is rebuking that. And he's saying that we are stewards. It is requires of stewards that we're all found faithful. And he's talking about Apollos and Peter and himself. And he's saying that all of us who are in these positions of Christian leadership, we're all just stewards. We just sow the seed, and we just help build the building. But the Lord's the foundation. It's his farm, his land. You are his church. And he's saying it's, it's a small thing whether you judge me or approve of me or pick Peter over me or Paulus over me anyway. I don't, I don't care. In fact, I don't even try to put myself in a category. I don't even sit and try to to figure out whether or not I'm the best apostle or whether or not I have my role as more expansive than Peter's or any of that. And I don't try to figure out, I know that I have my own sin and my own faults and those kinds of things, but I'm not aware of anything against myself, but that doesn't mean I'm innocent. That doesn't mean I'm acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And Paul is saying, his judgment is even beyond my own. I just go to him. I just have to go to him for insight into my own heart even as to whether or not there's anything against me. Verse 5, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. There's something very freeing about that. And there's something very frightening about that. The Lord's going to bring everything to light. Christian leaders that you've watched move on, fall, the Lord will take care of that. The Lord will judge that. Each one will receive his commendation from God. I believe David expresses this in his repentance in Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Wait a second. David had hurt and violated a number of people when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, then had her husband murdered by sending him to the front lines and having her buddy withdraw and having him killed. Adultery, murder. But God's disapproval was what mattered in the end because it was God who was sitting on the seat of judgment, and David knows that. This is what David's saying. God is the master to which each of us stands or falls. To stand before God is to pass his scrutiny. To fall before God is to fail his scrutiny. But 
he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. This is grace. This is grace. In the end, every brother in Christ, every sister in Christ, regardless of confidence in our liberties, will stand in God's presence because God has already accepted each of us in Christ. And if we know this to be true about each other, then how can we condemn each other? Verse 5 identifies another divisive issue. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Now, this could refer to keeping the Sabbath, or it could be other sacred days or feasts. Again, these were regulations commanded in the law of Moses. Christians who had spent a lifetime keeping the Sabbath and observing, for example, Passover, would have a hard time recognizing a sudden liberty from needing to keep those regulations. Whereas those who had not, in other words, Gentiles, had no hesitation transacting business on a Saturday, which was the Sabbath. It's not Sunday, it was Saturday. Again, Paul isn't seeking to correct either conviction. What's crucial is that each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 5. These convictions should be held with sincerity. They should not be held up as a facade. They should not be held and used as a tool to control others with guilt. They should not be used as a means of gain or self-promotion. Whatever the conviction is, it should be practiced with thanks and for the Lord's honor. These are the key words in verse 6. The one who observes the day, the weak in faith, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats meat, in other words, the strong in faith, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains from eating the meat, the weak in faith, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. The Lord seems to be concerned about the thanksgiving of the heart and the honor that it's done with or abstained from with. The master each of us serves is pleased by gratitude and honor, regardless of whether the service is rendered from a confidence in our liberties or a lack of confidence. And we have to evaluate ourselves that way before the Lord. And we have to evaluate others that way who are before the Lord. Because the Lord's ownership of each life is comprehensive. Look again at verse 7. The Lord's ownership of each of our lives is comprehensive. For none of us lives to himself. And none of us dies to himself. Not one of us owns ourselves in living or dying. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. 
So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And if all of life and even how and when each of us dies comes under his lordship, then so do our convictions and how we esteem each other. Christ has the sole right to receive or reject the service rendered to him by any of his servants. Jesus' comprehensive ownership of each of our lives and eternities was established with his death and resurrection. Look at verse 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So when Jesus died and rose again, he established with his death and resurrection ownership, comprehensive ownership of those who are joined to him. When we, Paul's already said this back in chapter 6, hasn't he? We are slaves of Christ. We belong to him completely. And if that's true, it's not just corporate, it's individual. You belong to Christ. You belong to Christ. You belong to Christ. I belong to Christ. And I report to my master. And you report to that same master. Reminds me of Jesus' words to the apostle, uh, the apostle Peter at the end of the Gospel of John, John chapter 21. You may remember Jesus has risen from the dead. He's there at the beach. Uh, Peter and John and some of the other disciples are, are present. And Jesus confronts Peter. He's restoring Peter, and he challenges him about denying, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times. Peter says, you know I love you. You know I love you. You know I love you. He says, then follow me. Feed my sheep. Follow me. And he takes Peter off, and, and he says, what about him? And he points to John, and John is recording this. And he says, what about him? And he says, what about him? What if I want him to live until I return again? Because Jesus has said, you're right, Peter. You're going to follow me. You're going to feed my sheep. And someday people are going to take you where you don't want to go, which was a, a veiled, though Peter got it, a veiled symbolic prophecy that Peter would die for Jesus' name. And he says, come with me. And I guess Peter's walking away there in John 21 going, okay, maybe I'm going to die right now. Maybe I'm about to give my life for the master right now. What about these guys? (laughs) Do they have to die? Right? And, And Jesus says, what about them? What if I want John to remain alive until the end, until I come again? What, is it, what does that matter? I'm your master. You're my servant. You follow me. So grounds for accepting each other then are, number one, we are accepted. We each are accepted by God. And we each belong to one master. And thirdly, we each give an account to the judge. In verses 10 through 12, Paul circles back around to his rebuke in verses 1 through three, doesn't he? Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? So these are one question, rhetorical question to one group, the next rhetorical question to the other group. What grounds do you have for condemning and rejecting each other? Why are you undermining your family? Why are you casting doubt on that person's relationship to 
God. And Paul points now to the end. We all stand before the judgment seat of God. This judgment seat is not the judgment of the human race, where the world answers for its rebellion against God the creator and faces his wrath. This judgment seat is the place where Christians give an account to God for their lives. Romans 8.1 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So salvation, eternity are not at stake at this judgment seat, but reward and commendation are. If any one of us eats a meat we shouldn't or observes a day that we should have skipped and let go, it is at this seat that God will judge, God will deal with us as he sees fit, not each other. Only he will do that. If you've ever watched children, you will have observed that children like to correct each other. They learn that from us to some degree, but they like to get a leg up on each other. They like to take a superior position, especially to their siblings. And for those of you who are parents, how many times have you said to one of your children who was bossing their brother or sister, that's not your job. That's mom's job. That's dad's job. You worry about you. That's kind of what Paul's saying (laughs) to all of us. You stop bossing. You worry about you. This unique right of God's is verified by his declaration in Isaiah 45, 23. That's where Paul quotes here. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. If you go read these chapters in Isaiah, you will find this declaration is surrounded by many other declarations of God's unique sovereignty and rule. This quotation fortifies the reality that God's evaluation of humanity is comprehensive and individual. Every knee, every tongue. Everybody will. There are no exceptions, no exemptions. And yet it is every individual knee, every individual tongue. So then, verse 12, the meaningful conclusion is that each of us will give an account of himself to God. As people who are united to Christ in his death and his resurrection, who are raised to new life, who are justified before God, we will never experience condemnation. We will never know God's wrath. We are secure in God's grace, in his election, in his love from which we can never be separated. But our lives will be evaluated. Each of us will give an account to God. So as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, let's not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. He will bring to light, right? He will disclose 
and then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now, let's talk about a couple of practical implications. We do not have the same sources of conflict, do we? I'm not aware of any of us, it's possible, but I'm not aware of any of us who grew up under the Mosaic Law. And even if it wasn't the Mosaic Law, most of us are not divided over dietary restrictions. Most of us are not fighting over, oh, you don't eat gluten, you are lesser, you are a lesser Christian. We don't have the same specific conflicts. Though there are some that are similar. And we certainly have plenty of matters of conviction, don't we? What about drinking alcohol? There are some Christians who say that drinking alcohol is wrong. It's sin. I've known many of them. While there are other Christians who say there's nothing wrong with alcohol, we know the scriptures are clear about not becoming drunk, not living a life of inebriation or slavery to alcohol. What about education? What about whether or not you homeschool or do Christian school or go to a public school? There are some who will die on that hill. They will say, that is scriptural. They'll go back to the Old Testament and say, do you see how the children in, in Israel were educated in the home? Therefore, homeschooling is the way. That's the right way. What about having big families versus small families? I've known some who think it is more spiritual to have more kids. The more children you have, the more spiritual you are. In Roman Catholicism, it's a sin to not have children or to somehow stop or to, to avoid having children. What about families who choose to have no children? What about musical styles? There are some who would not walk into this church and fellowship with us because we have drums. Now, there are not too many people in this area, this region, but there are some who wouldn't. And there are some who, if they walked in here and we had a piano and an organ and no drums, they would walk out. Is this what Paul's talking about? Yes, it is. What about certain forms of entertainment? You see, we have plenty of these issues, and both sides on these issues in our churches are guilty of judging and despising. Those with a conviction against alcohol, for example, will judge by saying, you're a compromiser. You're being worldly. And those who are for alcohol will despise the others by saying, you're a legalist. We need to pay careful attention, don't we, to what Paul says here. And we need to evaluate our own attitudes and how we treat one another when we disagree over something like that 
to make sure that our hearts are right before God. That we are allowing God to maintain his exclusive place as the final judge. At the same time, we have to also say this, though. Not every difference we might have is a matter of opinion. There are some things the scripture is clear about. I hope no one would ever answer or argue that adultery is a gray area that's okay and that this is just a matter of opinion and we shouldn't divide over it in the church. Or that we should not rebuke or admonish those who were out of line, who were living in blatant disobedience to the gospel, who were bringing shame to Christ's name. Not everything we differ over falls into this category. And Paul isn't dealing with that here. But I think in our sin, when we are not obeying God, when we're not filled with the Spirit, that we will tend to twist things into gray matters that aren't really gray. Or vice versa. We'll say that the scriptures are very clear about something that they're not quite clear about. But these are some practical implications for us. And we'll probably hit on some more of these as we get into the next couple of passages. But listen. Whether someone eats meat or insists on vegetables only, or observes a holy day or skips it, is of no eternal consequence, is what Paul's getting at. But listen, judging and despising each other, disrupting the unity of the church when we should accept each other, does have eternal consequences. Father, help us to be faithful in these things. Even in hearing these words, guard us from the temptation of thinking of others who need to hear Paul's warnings in chapter 14 about being judgmental and despising and to think about how I have, how we have, whether it is a passing judgment or despising or whether it is a deep-seated one that we dwell on. Lord, we know that you are, you are in the midst of transforming us, renewing our minds, and that this process of, of hearing your word to us about accepting one another is part of that ongoing work of transformation that you're doing. Help us to participate, to be faithful, to be humble in hearing these words and applying them to our own hearts. We ask this because of your great name and for the sake of the gospel. Amen. Amen, indeed.